I think it's such an interesting dynamic to delve into because I don't think it has a name, what we are. We're not best friends, although Will was best man at my wedding. We're kind of beyond best friends. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, Debbie talks with the design duo Alex Beck and Will Hudson about their close friendship and long collaboration and about what they've learned along the way. And actually, some of the best advice I got ages ago was never announce you're stopping something because people will be uproar. Just stop doing it and see if anyone notices. (laughs) Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsor, then her interview with Will Hudson and Alex Beck. Design Matters is supported in part by Heffler & Co., online at typography.com. There's nothing more critical to good design than good typography, and good typography begins with the best possible ingredients, the fonts themselves. Hefler & Co. are the designers of some of the world's most beloved typefaces, classics like Gotham and Knockout, and new designs like Operator and Decimal, typefaces that are designed to work well and work everywhere, whether you're designing a print, web, or mobile project. At typography.com, you'll find nothing but the highest quality fonts with complete families, deep character sets, and clever features to help solve design problems, as well as free tutorials to help you become a master typographer. Right now, as a Design Matters listener, you can save 15% on your next font order by using the code DESIGNMATTERS at checkout. That's all one word when you visit typography.com forward slash design matters. It's nice that in 2007, Will Hudson created a website that showcased the world's most interesting designers, artists, and photographers. It's also nice that shortly afterwards, his close friend, Alex Beck, teamed up with him, and that in 2009, both of them gave up their day jobs to work on the site. It's extremely nice that the website has gone on to become a pillar of the creative community and that they've branched out into a magazine, a creative agency, even a podcast. It's nice that .com is the website that is still at the center of it all. Will Hudson and Alex Beck join me from their homes in London, England. Alex and Will, welcome to Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Thanks, Debbie. It's so wonderful to see you both. How are you doing during this really strange and surreal time? I think, all things considered, we're doing great. We're um, we're an optimistic duo in general, so although the world feels like it's as unknown and kind of scary as it's ever been, or we've definitely ever known it in our lifetimes, um, we're trying to find some optimistic ways through it, I think. And well, how about you? Yeah, I think I agree. I think we're what? We're kind of 11 weeks in now, so I think had we had this conversation after two or three we might have been slightly more distracted and slightly more kind of getting to grips with things but actually I think the team have responded amazingly well I'd like to think that with the output you wouldn't really know that everyone is is working remote but even being 11 weeks in it comes with its own teething problems right is you're still I mean we set up the business with the idea of being surrounded by one another and being able to have those conversations and and collaborate in person and that still doesn't look like it's anytime soon so I think we remain positive but I think we're also well aware that we're probably in this for another 11 weeks maybe. 
I want to talk with you about It's Nice That, of course, but I also want to talk to you about how you came to be who you are. Are you guys cool with that? Yeah, I'm excited to learn about Will Hudson. <laughs> it won't take well, long. Alex, we're gonna we're gonna start with you. Actually, <laughs> oh, <nice>. um, <laughs> you grew up in London until you were about thirteen, and then you moved to a small town near the south coast of England. Why did you and your family move? Yeah, for my dad's work. My dad managed supermarkets, and there was a big opportunity in a tiny little town called Salisbury. And so he moved us, all born and bred Londoners. My mum had been in London her whole life. My dad had been in London his whole life. And we kind of moved to this unknown town in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, it was a crazy time, but I was pretty happy-go-lucky. I think as long as my school played football and, you know, I could go outside, I didn't really mind where I was, to be totally honest. Was there a big culture shock, though, going from London to a very small town? Yeah, I mean, it was a major culture shock, but I found it very exciting. At that age, I kind of, my eyes were open to a different world. And especially from a schooling perspective, you know, I was in a big, mixed, comprehensive, you know, like state school in London with thousands and thousands of kids a year. I went from that into a boys grammar school where no one other than white people were there. And it's just so crazy. I was an ethnic minority in North London. And then I moved to somewhere and I thought it was Diwali. I asked my mum whether it was Diwali because there were no Asian people anywhere. And she was like, no, no, there just aren't any in Salisbury. And I just thought that was just the most wild idea. And so with that, I met a lot of people who were very scared of London. I met a lot of people who were kind of very sheltered from another part of the world. And I feel so blessed looking back that um, I got that perspective and I got to see a load of different things. And I think I would have enjoyed anywhere. I was happy around whoever I was with. And as long as I could go and play football, I didn't really mind. At that point in your life, what did you think you wanted to do professionally? I loved the idea of being a cartoonist. I loved illustration. I loved drawing letters. I was very into fine art with words in it, with like a Jenny Holzer or Christopher Wool. Or I was very into the idea of doing art, but I don't think I knew that really what that meant at that age. But um, that and really just be a footballer, well, a soccer player for, for the Americans. So given the choice, would you have preferred to become a professional sportsman? 100% Debbie. Obviously. And so why didn't you? Why didn't you go after that? <laughs> I think a distinct lack of talent was probably the main factor. Um, yeah, it's funny. I think being a sports person would, would have been amazing, but also being a musician, being in a band would have been amazing. Whenever I'm ever lucky enough to go and speak at conferences, I always remember someone saying to me that um, this is about as close as we get to doing what we actually really want to do, which is being a band. So you ended up getting a foundation degree in art studies at the Arts Institute at Bournemouth and then went on to study graphic design at Brighton University. And that's where Destiny took over and brought you and Will face to face. But Will, I understand that you were told during your foundation course that you shouldn't apply to the University of Brighton as you wouldn't get in. Yeah, I think it was kind of a bit of a shock. I think I'd, I'd been lucky enough to kind of go through life to that point being told, yep, you can do what you want. Um, you can just kind of aim for the stars, set your mind on something, work hard, and it will pay off. And and yeah, it was a bit of a shock that the tutor at the time just kind of went, yeah, I don't think your work's really suited. I don't think you'll get in. Because it was, I guess it was quite a small course at the time. It was maybe 30, 35 students. And growing up in Birmingham, which was probably two, two and a half hours away, I think the tutor had just never been to Brighton and was just like, feels like a long way away. So maybe <laughs> maybe go to somewhere a bit bit nearer. So it's putting his own limitations on you. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But 
I don't know. I think I think what's so fascinating about that time at Foundation is I kind of took my tutor's word for it. I didn't really question anything. I didn't question why I shouldn't do that. And actually, it was only through the kind of fortune slash misfortune of not getting into the university that they they recommended that actually led to me to having a bit more time to think about it and actually being in the position that I could apply to numerous places the year after. But I ended up going to Brighton, meeting Alex, my business partner. I met Dem, my partner, who we now have three kids with. Like, I can't complain. Yeah, I mean, sometimes what seems at the outset to be one of the biggest disappointments or rejections of a life oftentimes comes around to be one of the most important things that sort of sets the course for a different path that you end up really enjoying. 100%. And I think it's sometimes so difficult to see it at the time, but I think through the experiences of it, you kind of learn that as and when you get those knockbacks that it's not the end of the world. But it is tough to take. Like, Don't get me wrong, I'm pretty sure I cried that I didn't get into university. Oh, I'm sure. While you were at Brighton, you also interned at Wallpaper Magazine during your second year. And I know that that influence was was really impactful. Can you talk about what happened when you were there? Yeah, I mean, going from Alex's story of growing up in London, I think one of my first proper experiences of London was that wallpaper. And I was there for a month and I stayed with a friend in South London. So I kind of got thrown straight into commuting in rush hour Uh, walking over, I think it was Waterloo Bridge, into the wallpaper offices, which at the time must have been, I'm guessing, kind of 100 people. And I think I I kind of fell into the cliched intern role where I kind of didn't know why the hell I was there, what the hell I was supposed to be doing. I was saying yes to things that I think they assumed I could do. But it was amazing. It It was the most amazing kind of just being thrown in at the deep end, getting given an opportunity, getting to talk to those creatives who are in those roles who weirdly people that we've ended up working with um, 10, 15 years later. But I think it was just the scale. More than anything, it was just seeing a monthly magazine turned around. And this was 2006, so there were still kind of physical copies of photographs being sent in. It was still that kind of, I guess it was just at the time that physical was kind of entering digital. But it was amazing. It was I, I learned so much in that month. I also started my career in the magazine business, and I came across this quote that you said about your experience and just wanted to read it because I felt so much kindred love for your experience through the quote. You said this about the experience. Seeing behind the doors of how things come together every month, from the commissioning and conversations about a photographer's contact sheet, to seeing the flat plan and the issue come together in an A4 ring binder, to see how retouchers work their magic, to deciding what should be on the cover. Every day, something else I'd previously taken for granted was played out in front of me, and I'm grateful to the design team at the time for letting me see into their world. It really is a, a beautifully unique world. Did you at that point begin to think about how you might then create something with a sort of editorial focus? Probably, yeah. I think there was definitely the desire to try and do an internship at somewhere like Wallpaper was because I think I was more interested in working in somewhere like that. I think Alex and I had had a bit of experience in doing a publishing project called If You Could. Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> and I think it was, I think it was that thing that as 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 massively as kind of intimidating it was to, to kind of see behind the curtain of how something like that comes together. I think at the same time, you kind of go, actually, these are um, very talented, but normal people 
and it is a case of just having a bit of a process and a, and a passion and a kind of desire to put something out into the world. I think it was all of that coming together that kind of just went, yeah, actually, this is this is something that I'd be really interested in in pursuing. And I think a lot of those lessons, a lot of those things that you talk about there are things that through experiencing, because I don't think you can read about them in a book or be set them as a university project. It's a case of seeing them firsthand did influence the, those kind of first jobs that Alex and I did. I think the the printing out, the flat plans, the talking about commissioning, just all those things that you pick up that you then, you try and use as if you kind of know how to talk the talk and you're probably faking it the whole time going, yeah, I think I'm using the right word. I hope I'm using the right word. <laughs> Alex, tell us about how the two of you met. It seems to be, you know, if somebody were to do your astrological charts, if you believe in that, that meeting of the two of you would probably feature quite prominently given how your lives have unfolded and intersected. So tell us how you met. I can't remember too much about how we met. I know that we were in the same <laughs> we were in the same class of graphic design students. So there were thirty five of us in a in a room. I have a vague recollection of we all got photos, mugshots taken of us at the start of each year. I remember talking to Will in the queue to get our mugshots done and everyone just joking about how much taller Will was than me because Will must be six three, six four, and I must be, you know, five six tops. And so I think people just found it funny when we were close to each other. So maybe maybe that was a reason we got talking. I can't believe you don't remember how we met. <laughs> so, Will, do you have a different recollection, Will? I always love to, to get origin <laughs> stories from each partner in a business or, you know, each person in a couple. I have not got the first clue. I think, to be totally <laughs> honest, my memories of Alex early on were much more about halls of residence parties, house parties. It was more the kind of stuff outside of the course. And actually, I think even the, the few times that we tried to work together in uni, it didn't really work that well. We were mates first. We were mates long before the idea of work came up. And I think um, I'm kind of so grateful for that because I think it got a lot of the enjoyment of being around each other out the way. Uh, I think when we started working <laughs> with each other, there was no kind of, we weren't trying to kind of forge a, an alliance and a friendship. I think that was there. I think if anything, over the years, we've we've ended up spending far less time with each other outside of work. I think work is now where we kind of hang out and, and, and see each other. Talk about the, the relationship that you have as business partners. I think it's such an interesting dynamic to delve into because I don't think it has a name, what we are. We're not best friends, although Will was best man at my wedding. We're kind of beyond best friends. It's a very strange thing. I wouldn't describe Will as my best mate but equally probably the person who knows me the best and I hang out with the most and I've shared the highest highs and the lowest lows with. And weirdly, that doesn't have a name. But to your other question, we disagree all the time um, in a really healthy, important way. And I think I speak for myself here, but the reason that I enjoy working with Will so much is because we don't really share the same opinion on lots of things. And when it comes to work, we're happy to challenge each other and... I think at our worst, we can get into our own little bubbles and our blinkers up and the other person always drags us out of that. Or someone's moving too quickly down one direction and they haven't thought about the other one. The other person will just kind of pluck them out. I can't think of one major argument we've ever really had, which is a crazy thing to say after 14, 15 years probably working together. Yeah. I mean, two-person partnerships are really difficult. Having been in a two-person partnership and a three-person partnership, two-person partnerships often a disagreement can be seen as an argument in a three-person disagreement 
it's more of a debate. (laughs) So I've seen a lot of two-person partnerships become problematic because of the need to be able to compromise and negotiate far more with one person as opposed to two or three where you might have different allegiances at different times. And and that can be a really positive thing. We always said that whoever, you know, argued for the longest or discussed their point at the most length, the other one eventually go, well, you know what, there must be something in it. If you care that much, let's just go with that. But neither of us really had any ego or we didn't have to own anything. It didn't have to be our idea. And I think it's nice that is a is a really pure execution of that. It was never about us. It was always about everyone else. So the idea that someone was right or someone was wrong or it's someone's idea or not was completely irrelevant to both of us, I think. Your first collaboration, I believe, was a box set of postcards that you made for sale to fund your year-end portfolio shows. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And so you then, I believe, developed the idea into a range of projects, which you titled, as you mentioned, If You Could, which included books, prints, exhibitions that featured illustrators and designers, including David Shrigley, who's one of my favorite, absolute favorite, favorite people, Margaret Calvert, George Hardy, Rob Ryan. What was the the backstory for the name, If You Could, and what made you decide to curate and feature other people's work rather than your own? So on the name, I think it was um, it was trying to come up with something that was super open and broad. And I think because we were asking these kind of very talented creatives to kind of donate their time and skill in submitting a, a response to that question, we wanted to keep it super open. And also, I think if you could do anything tomorrow, what would it be? I think we also we were kind of interested in what they'd do. I think it was also around the time that we were thinking about what was next for us being within education. There was something so simple about if you could do anything tomorrow, what would it be? It's the kind of question you can ask anyone and it will ignite and start a conversation and you'll learn something about that person. Also, we decided it really hastily as we were going out to a comedy show. Do you remember that, Will? Um, yeah. Essentially, we were, I think we were late on coming up with the idea. It was in tomorrow or something. And we were going to see a comedian called Daniel Kitson, who we absolutely love still to this day. And we were going to ask him this question backstage. And we, we managed to give him a postcard. And we just asked him if he could do anything, what would it be? Um, and as we were walking out, it's like, well, we're going to have to come up with something. Let's just do the most open thing we can. So um, that was kind of a bit of a litmus test for whether it was going to work or not. But as soon as someone of note in our world had done it, like a comedian like Daniel Kitson, we were like, whoa, this is super exciting. The idea that people will just respond to this in a second and, and we can get something. And what made you decide not to include your own work in that curation? It's an interesting point because we've we've been avid fans of never including our own work in any of our projects. And it's nice that was always about everyone else and not us. And it was very strange. Well, firstly, and most flippantly, everyone else's work had value and ours didn't. <laughs> so it was like, if we get David Shrigley... <laughs> okay. um, Easy decision. <laughs> if we get David Shrigley and Anthony Burrell and um, Mr Bingo and all these brilliant people to do it, then we might be able to sell a set of postcards for £10. If we do it, you know, maybe our mums will buy it tops. And so we kind of, I think it was it was quite pragmatic. And the fact that we were in it was probably uh, not going to help the cover price, I'd say. It's nice that was born out of the ambition to tie this all together, to research, to curate, to organize things. First and foremost, however, it was a response to a university brief. We'll talk about the brief and how you made the decision to essentially create it's nice that 
Uh, yeah, it's nuts when you put it like that. Um, and so grateful that on that day, Hamish turned around the tutor with this brief, which was super open. Similarly, it was um, put something in the public domain to make people feel better about themselves. And uh, I think the, just the connotation with domain at the time and even now kind of still just has um, immediate remains to think of domain names and websites. It was, so it was perfect timing. And it was just at a point where to publish something online like It's Nice That was almost easier to build than it was, as was the case with most projects back then, that you'd create a series of mock-ups and you'd go, here's the idea, and you'd talk about an idea. And the best way of talking about an idea is showing the idea. And again, perfect storm. Um, There's a guy called Jez in the year below who was just starting to experiment with building slightly more involved websites. And a conversation with him and a few kind of wireframes and mock-ups led to him building it in... I think kind of a little over 48 hours, maybe maybe three days. And it existed. And because it existed, we used it. And we posted from April the 4th, 2007, every day. Monday to Friday, two things a day. I mean, I put so much of the early days down to luck. And I think the kind of blogging world as it was then was the community around it was so much more supportive than maybe it is now. So there was maybe three or four people doing a kind of similar thing of showcasing and promoting other creators' work at a point where even just people having websites was a new thing. Not everyone had a website. And it just gathered momentum. It was a time where we were constantly looking at other creators' work and websites. And it was born out of a kind of desire to kind of um, document and and find a way of archiving and, and kind of making a reference point to go back to, to be a useful thing that you could go and kind of find that photographer that you'd been looking at two weeks ago or that graphic design studio. And again, I think because there weren't many people doing it, when you start to feature those people, they would say thanks. And it was a way into talking to those people. We got a train to ride to meet Anthony Burrell, who picked us up in his car and drove us back to his studio and showed us around his studio and spent half a day with us. And I think when you're starting out, those excuses are, are gold. You both graduated from Brighton. You got other jobs in design and illustration. And then in 2009, you realized that 80,000 people were looking at the website. And at that point, well, you called Alex. And what did you ask him? I'm guessing this is leading to the, Alex, do you want to have 50% of this? Do you want to buy 50% <laughs> of something that's not worth very much money and uh, come and do this? I think we, it, was a, it was a weird time because I think it was around the financial crisis. We were at a point that we were getting kind of approached for certain opportunities. And I think... Like what? What kind of opportunities? We were doing... So if you could had continued, we'd done another book with maybe 150 artists working it and we had also been asked to do an exhibition up in Newcastle it was called design event and we were putting up this show and basically through conversation it was like look we're we're there's an opportunity to do a bit more of if you could we're getting approached to do a few things on it's nice that and Alex had ended up getting it's nice that a commission through a freelance job that he was doing and I think we ultimately we looked at it and we we knew we wanted to work together there was this weird thing in the middle which was it's nice that that there was a danger it would get in the way if I kind of said, no, this is my thing. And I think it would have ultimately driven us apart and ended up doing different things. And I think very simply, it was a case of, well, look, do we do this thing together? Do we make it the main Monday to Friday, nine to five and and the real focus and see what it can do? 
And I have absolutely no shadow of a doubt that it's nice that is a hundred times bigger than it would ever have become if it was just something that I kept to myself and tried to build on my own. It's the best decision I've made. It's fairly magnanimous for you to have just said, you know what, you want to buy 50% of the company, Alex? It's pretty remarkable, actually. Well, I, th- I think you've got to remember that at the time, it was it was worth nothing. I think we joked for six months a year that if it all went wrong, we could just go and get proper jobs. And I think slowly we stopped saying that because I think it showed signs of, of growing into something else and, and gathering momentum. Actually, it was the opposite. You gave up your proper jobs and committed to doing this venture with no... Uh, guarantee that it was going to be successful? Were you scared? Were you nervous? Did you have this sense that the momentum was building and you were on the crest of a wave that was going to be really big? You take this out. I was going to say, I think we sacrificed very little because we had nothing. We had no mortgages. We had no one dependent on us. You know, we had no major commitments. Actually, it was kind of very freeing and easy to do you know we had a little bit of debt and actually now I have so much respect looking at people pivoting in the middle of their careers giving up real jobs not jobs that they had for a year out of university on proper salaries with families and with commitments saying hey I'm going to go and do this business I look at that and I go wow there's some real bravery I think what we had is just some kind of some passion and some gumption and some excitement around the idea of working together And again, I do think if it had all come at once or we just made that on one day, then it would be scary. But actually, we've been working together on If You Could for years and we were kind of freelancing together as well on the side. And so it was much less of a jump off a cliff moment and a bit more of a, hey, you know what? This is just going to make our lives easier. And actually, our partnership is going to work better this way. And hey, we really want to make a graphic design studio. So this is a chance of us being able to work every day on a graphic design studio and not have to be annoyed that Will's working 6am till 9am on this it's nice that thing so weirdly I kind of felt like I was buying into it's nice that for sure but really we were just investing in the idea of working together. So there was always a sense that you were going to broaden the reach and create multiple businesses not just it's nice that with your partnership, within your partnership? I think we were going to try multiple things. I don't think we we ever had the vision that it would be multiple businesses, but the idea that that one would work was pie in the sky. The idea that, oh, it's all about it's nice that because that's going to be this thing that reaches 2 million people in 13 years. Like, no way. <laughs> it's like, well, this one's probably got a chance. This if you could thing was probably much bigger or kind of definitely more profitable for us. And our graphic design studio was actually making ends meet for us and paying our rent. So actually, it's nice that was probably the the biggest risk, even though there were 80,000 people looking at it. I read that Simon Wybray registered It's Nice That and ran it as an RSS feed for (laughs) ages. And I read you emailed him and asked him if you could use it instead. And he just said, sure, and gave you the password. That was awfully nice of him. It was, wasn't it? It was at a time where the internet was just a kind of friendlier place. But yeah, yeah. I, I remember, I'm not even sure we knew it was him to begin with. I think we just emailed whoever it was and said, hey, is there any chance we can have this? Because actually, we'd quite like to have this nice that Twitter handle, which he was just running as an RSS. And immediately it was just like, yep, yeah, there you go. Good odds, Simon. There's a bigger point there that the power and the magic of it's nice that was that it was called it's nice that. So it was completely unintimidating and no one thought, it was never going to amount to anything, really, if you know what I mean. Called cool, it's nice that. And also, it was friendly. 
all it was there to do was to showcase other people's work. And I'm sure we would have probably showcased Simon's work at that point two or three times or, you know, <laughs> seen him at a show. And actually it was kind of, like Will says, it was a friendlier place. Everyone was just trying to promote everyone else and the fact that he could help with that. It wouldn't have even been questioned at that stage. It's mad what has happened, I guess, from that kind of lowly, lowly point. Well, I want to be a little tiny bit cantankerous and say that in many instances in my research, I came upon you both saying um, how lucky you were and it was luck. And you seem to have underplayed your efforts in this uh, quite a bit. It's <laughs> luck and it was a good timing thing and everybody was nice. And, you know, I remember 2008, it wasn't a particularly nice time. It was definitely dog eat dog in terms of finding business. And do you really, 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 really believe it was luck? That's a leading question. You can't possibly say yes at this point, I know. So I'm sorry. No, there's, there's, that, there's that great quote about you get lucky and then you pretend you were smart. And I think <laughs> it is. I think, I think we were just, I think one of the things I think we've always held quite dear is just a work ethic to just get on. Back then we started early. We never, we never worked particularly late. We'd always rather get to the office and be working from 7, 7.30 than work through till 10 p.m. Um, but I think we've always um, we've always maintained that I think hard work actually makes up for quite a lot. I think we obviously had something we had we had kind of a seed of an idea, a kind of passion and ambition to make something happen. But yeah, I I put a lot down to just a work ethic back then, which was if we put the hours in, we'd like to think we'll get something back out of it. And consistency. We were so dogged. If we were going to do this blog thing, then we were going to do it consistently. So if that was going to be two articles a day, it was two articles a day. No excuses. And I think actually really what set us apart from many of the blogs that were maybe around then that aren't now is that we just kept doing it. You know, we were absolutely dedicated to doing it, whether it was going to work or not. And I think it was so easy to to start a blog at that point. It was very difficult to keep a blog going. And I remember Will saying to me, I think it was our printer actually said to us, there's lots of issue ones of lots of magazines. There's very few issue 20s. Yeah. Get to issue 20 and you'll be all right. And that really landed with me, I think. Did you have a business plan when you started? I know you were really opposed to investors, but what about a business plan? <laughs> no, I think, I think uh, everyone's adverse to investors when they don't think they'd get any investment. Um, <laughs> no, we didn't have a business plan. Uh, we had an idea and we had some great advice in growing it and building it. But no, a business plan came much, much later. We ended up getting a, a mentor through an organization called Nesta. And the guy that we got paired with on that was great. And he actually said, one of his first things was like, where's your business plan? And we kind of went, we don't really have one. And, and he kind of set us to task on going, look, you need one. Here's a book. Here's some things. Uh, and he took us through that process. And it's been incredibly useful. But no, we didn't have one for a long time. I understand that the wisdom, wit, and excellent Christmas lunches with the designer and entrepreneur Paul Smith have been a huge influence on you. In, in what way? How did you first meet and, and how has he influenced your thinking? Yeah, Paul has been an absolute legend to us and the most incredible mentor. And we met him because the Design Museum was doing a show of designers' work. And at this point, must have been 2009, it's nice that was kind of on the scene that we might get offered an interview with someone. And the Design Museum, we were on their mailing list and they said, hey, would you like an interview with any of these designers? And I emailed back and just went, yeah, all of them. Well, we, I'd like to interview all of them. That would be great. 
and we got denied by every single designer but Paul Smith we got a three minute slot with or a one minute slot something ridiculous and so I kind of bowled up to the design museum like all perky like great we get to see Paul um, I gave him the first issue of our printed magazine and he's always been a real fan of stuff he described himself as a fan of stuff you know his shops were always full of really interesting pieces of art or objects from different countries and I think he looked through the magazine and he just saw a kindred spirit and was just like, hey, you know what, you guys are fans of stuff, I'm fans of stuff. And he said, my office has got loads of books in it and loads of amazing artists I could show you. And we saw it as a way of getting some content for the site. Oh, great, this guy's going to show us 10 posts for next week. You know, it's quite short-sighted in its first instance. And um, we had this amazingly famous researcher for us. But then, you know, he introduced us to his assistant and said, come by the office and I emailed his assistant and they gave us a date nine months in the future <laughs> and we walked into his office and he had that issue of the magazine printed out with post-it notes on it of stuff that he loved and things that he didn't like so much and he thought we could change and it was just absolutely mind-blowing that someone like that would take the time to entertain giving us feedback it was just absolutely amazing and then he's a very beguiling and funny guy and so hanging out with him was fun and so we just kept going back ever since every three months we go back we've become very good friends more than anything else now that's extraordinary um one of the things that i know paul has said to you was don't spend money if it's not in the jar um what did he mean by that i think he meant live within your means and I think it was also a time where we were probably asking him lots of advice about investment or, you know, how do we grow this thing? And I think he probably looked at us and said, you know, this thing has a chance, but actually I should probably advise these guys not to get in a whole heap of debt or advise them not to take big loans or to look for investment. And I think he saw a purity in what we were doing that actually it was clear we were doing it because we loved it, not to, not to make loads of money. And so I think that advice was about staying in control and enjoying the independence more than anything else. And you know, if we had a thousand pounds in the bank rather than pay yourself another thousand pounds, spend it on a member of staff or on, you know, a thing for the office. We were always motivated by that, but it gave us the most amazing freedom in being able to make our own decisions and do what we thought was right. And I think as an editorial, curatorial based platform, the idea that we can make our own decisions because we weren't spending someone else's money or going after someone else's growth was an absolute godsend. It was just the most fantastic way of starting a business like it's nice that. But that's I mean, that's just one of the things that Paul has said. He's so he's so good with words and those kind of um short captions that Alex and I will we will just repeat that phrase and we both know exactly what it is that we're talking about. So things like every day is a new beginning or nobody cares how good you used to be. And there are just <laughs> enough of those things that you kind of just go, Yep, yeah, he's he's exactly right. And there's a story that follows that but it's those kind of nuggets that I think stick with us. What is the story that follows? Oh, so on every one, on, on each of those small quotes that he has, there's a whole story that comes out of I it. I see. So he has one which is about the squirt of lemon, which is the idea that a kid will go on this family holiday, have this amazing time, um, but on the last day, he'll have his fish and chips, and as he squeezes the lemon, it gets his mum in the eye. And when he goes home and his grandparents ask him how the holiday was, he just talks about squirting his mum in the eye with the lemon. And it's like nothing about that great holiday. But all of them just have that story attached to them. So it's very easy to, to reference like the, the three or four word caption, but it's, it's the meaning behind it. How has 
your views, how have your views of entrepreneurship and business leadership changed over the years? Do you still resist the idea of investors? Do you want to grow more organically through your individual visions? Talk about how you are now thinking about your future. I think the key with entrepreneurship, in my opinion, is to be yourselves. I think what we've actually got very good at is understanding what makes us happy and where we feel comfortable and where we love going to work. And I think that the big challenge I see with entrepreneurship and business strategy now is there's so much of it publicly. We can watch Dragon's Den or Shark Tank as it in the US. We can read Forbes. That it is reported on everywhere what percentage person owns of X and what investment they got or what seed round this latest startup got. In 2008, we, we had absolutely no idea that world existed. The idea that you could invest in companies that weren't um, making profit or anything like that was crazy. And so I think over the years, I feel so strongly about sustainable business. And I don't mean that necessarily in a climate way. I mean it in a make a pound at the end of the month way, is that actually businesses that truly are businesses that make money and make profit and serve the people that work for them. And I think guests I've grown increasingly um, frustrated with entrepreneurship as a thing just as it's become more and more and more accepted as a as a mass term almost that you can have an idea and never make money and take other people's money and have no plan about how it's ever going to come back and that's kind of okay and I always saw that as that for me is a project that's a big project that isn't a business and it's the Paul Smith um, school of business really is make a pound and pay all the people on time and that's a phenomenal business it's a very socialist idea I think. I see a, a book project with the two of you and Paul in the in the future. Well, um, I think it, it would be a really good offering to young people trying to start businesses. But Alex, speaking of leadership, I read that you generally find leadership and management training impenetrable and that the biggest influence on your leadership skills has been football, or as we say in the United States, soccer. In what way has football helped you understand leadership? I think because it's the most extreme version of what I see management and leadership could possibly be in that you're faced with a squad of incredible egos who all think they're number one in the players, who are all paid astronomical amounts more than the manager and the leader. And so navigating that as a situation, as an individual trying to get the best out of a team, I have always found absolutely fascinating. And I guess the impenetrableness of leadership writing and a lot of that training and all of that development. I absolutely love leadership and I love management and I love reading about it. I just always felt like it was very narrow in that you learn these things through abstract case studies of businesses you didn't necessarily care about. But I could remember what Alex Ferguson said to his squad before the 99, you know, European Cup final for Manchester United. And I was interested in that. And that was what, no different. What did he say? <laughs> what was it that he said? Well, good question. Actually, on that, I have no idea what he said. But I do remember one, <laughs> one amazing um, halftime team talk he gave when Man United were losing to Tottenham. And he just at halftime, they're 3-0 down. He just said, come on, guys, it's Tottenham. And they went out and they won 5-3. And it, I think you probably need some kind of 
some local knowledge about football to understand that. But I just thought it was it was much more appealing to learn about these concepts of motivation, of organisation, of hierarchical structures, of different roles in a team through something that I was interested in, not through, I don't know, the org chart of Microsoft. It was just it, it just felt like it never went in. I understand your favorite book about football and management is Alex Ferguson's first biography, Managing My Life, which was published in 1999. What is it about that book that you like so much? I love it because I lived watching Manchester United as a as a kid and um, crying when they lost and rejoicing when they won. So, you know, I was there. I feel like I was I was there with every sinew of my my child's being. But in particular, for him and for Alex Ferguson in particular, I just love the real big picture idea. He walked into a club that didn't really have a structure, didn't have an ethos, didn't have a way that it did things and put in lots of youth development. He put in lots of structures and lots of processes and lots of ways things were done at that club. And no one was bigger than those ways. So it was like ultimate strategy. Here is the strategy. This is where we're going. It's going to take five, 10 years. And if you're in, you're in. And if you're out, you're out. I think I admire that doggedness and that that clarity of thought. Um, maybe it's an aspirational thing. Maybe I aspire to be able to think that big picture in that long term. And yeah, he was an absolute stickler for that that detail. But but equally being very personable. You know, if he wanted to sign a player, he'd go and see their family and he'd talk to their family and he'd look after that person and understand what they were going through and you know what their partner's name was and actually kind of understand them as a person as well as a footballer and. Um, two really distinct sides of this absolute authoritarian and then a very personable, caring, empathetic person on the other side. And yeah, I just I admire that way of doing things. I want to talk about the other aspects of the Hudson Beck empire. Um, but I also want to ask you, Alex, about a short stint that you had at Wolf Olin's in 2013 and 2014. Um, where you were the visiting creative director and was there to help them look at the way they work in a new light. That must have been an incredibly fascinating opportunity. I'm wondering if you can share what it was like to have that inside view of one of the world's greatest branding consultancies. It was so exciting and also incredibly daunting because... I can only imagine. I th- we'd never had a job. So the idea that, you know, we'd had one job before, it's nice that and you know, us working together. And so the idea that I was being allowed behind the curtain of a design studio that I was really allowed to see how it worked, not just interview the creative director, actually see how it worked, um, was just exciting. And I say it to lots of students now, actually, if we were to do something again, I'd go and intern or try and work in junior positions at lots more places than we did, because we didn't ever get that experience that I think we really could have benefited from. But Wolf Rollins in itself was just a fantastic creative director called Sandy Suffield. Again, had done a piece for If You Could maybe five years earlier, six years earlier. We met her through that. She was at Apple at the time. And she was a creative director at Wolf Rollins. Just said, we're doing this program where someone comes in one day a week for three months and they come and challenge the work and they try and give a new perspective of someone who wouldn't necessarily work here. So they saw me as, I guess, someone from publishing and someone from media who could look at their work with that eye but all I did really was 
realized that on my own I wasn't that good at that much and actually the magic that I think I can bring to a company like that is to bring different people in and bring collaboration and so I ended up using three quarters of my fee every single day I went in there to bring someone else with me so I'd pay someone that I loved and an executor someone who could make something in a day to come in and work with the most bored team I could find so the ones who'd been doing the brand guidelines for two years and had never developed a project over a couple of days for years, probably not since college. And then I gave them this amazing practitioner and me and we'd do a project for a day. And I felt like that's how I could have the biggest influence was to kind of bring people out of their day-to-day and change the pace of their work. Did that influence you to start your own agency? Because you now have the Anyways Creative, which is a, a big part of your business, Um, an initiative you describe as a creative agency that helps brands be more adventurous and meaningful. And you also have two other businesses. Um, You have Lecture in Progress, which is a platform offering advice, insight, and inspiration. And if you could, you brought the name back, a creative jobs board providing creative people the ability to browse hundreds of opportunities across the industry. So I want to talk about Anyways Creative, but I also want to know why have you decided to evolve your business in these ways? I think initially it was necessity to have things around it's nice that that made money. Can I say that, Will? (laughs) You know, it was like we were running a blog with 80,000 people on it and you couldn't sell enough banner ads to keep the lights on. You know, we didn't have the audience to make any money out of publishing. So we got some great jobs from brands coming to It's Nice That saying, you know, all the best talent in the world. Could you commission them to do something for us? And we had enough of those jobs that we made the agency. So again, without a business plan, maybe, but... Equally, we kind of acted on opportunities. So when that kept happening, we're like, you know what, there's enough of this work, let's start an agency. And that helped us drive the revenue without having to really take lots of advertising on It's Nice That and um, diminish what we thought was an important curatorial voice that you couldn't pay to be on It's Nice That for years and years and years and years. And then I know we've downplayed the effort up to this point or maybe, you know, we got lucky. But I do think this last five years, we've been so dogged in being really controlled and really um, strong about our point of view on building a group, building the Hudson Beck group that all of those businesses sit underneath. Because we believe as a group, we can have much more impact. And the group purpose is to enable creativity to thrive and to give others opportunity. And so with that, just doing that through one entity, through and it's nice that, great, we can give people a great platform for their work to be found, but we can't necessarily commission them or we can't find them a job or we can't give them careers advice. And so we kind of built things around it's nice that as part of the job, as part of the group that could give other people opportunities in other ways that it's nice that couldn't. And really anyways, creative's model is about doing fantastic creative direction and strategy for a client, but then bringing the best in the business to help execute that. Uh, Again, we don't want to keep the fee. We want that fee to be shared with the best people in the business for that job at that point. And really, that's why we call it Anyways Creative, is that we believe there's any way to kind of express a message for a brand. That doesn't have to be an experience. We're not an experiential agency. We're not a digital agency. We're not an illustration agency. We're not an animation agency. But if that's what the message needs at that point, hey, take a look at it. It's nice that I bet you we have the network to make the most amazing piece of work that you need. And that was a very deliberate choice. I was really struck in preparing for this interview by how much 
strategic work you've done in defining and determining who you are, the direction you want to go in, and why you've made those decisions. You're really transparent about that. It seems like you've wanted to grow rather slowly and and not create a, a scenario where you're taking over the world overnight. Talk about how you get business for anyways. Do people just come to you? Is it something that you're going out and looking for? You just did a phenomenal job for Sonos, with Sonos. How do these things come to be? I would say it's not that different to many other agencies. There's a new business process at its most basic. But if I was to talk about, you know, the magic dust, what the fairy dust is, is it's exactly the same as the success of all of the other businesses, which is about relationships, is about actually staying in touch and doing right by people all the way along. So, you know, the Sonos work that we did in New York that you mentioned was a contact from 11 years previous, a guy called Simon, who gave us a great opportunity to cover an exhibition when he worked at Nike. And we stayed in touch for 10, 11 years. And so when he's um, commissioning a, an agency to do a job for the company he works at Sonos, you know, we, we get ourselves to put our hat in the ring. You know, the job isn't given to us. We pitch like everyone else. But I believe all of the fantastic opportunities that we've had is all about relationships and treating people as we want them to be treated and being genuinely interested in what they're doing. We kept in touch with Simon because we want to know what he was doing, not because we thought he'd give us a job. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a nice offshoot. We're just kind of, we're interested in what everyone else is doing and it's nice that's the, the purest version of that, I think. Anything that you regret, anything that you wish you'd done differently in the last 13 years of building your business? No, I think I I heard, um, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was a sportsman who got asked this question. And I wouldn't want to change a single thing in the in the chance it would influence the stuff that's followed. I think we've, we, there's, there's things that we would maybe in the moment want to change, but I think either it's, it's lessons learned or it's puts in situations that we've had to um, figure out. I think from not getting into uni first time around to where we are now, it's all a combination of the highs, the lows, and everything in between. And uh, this is when Alex goes, yeah, I changed that, that one thing. But no, there's not, um, there's not anything that I would change when looking back or regret. How do you um, determine what roles you're going to have in the, aspect of the, in the various aspects of the business? Are you each in charge of separate things or do you co-manage everything? No, I think we're, I think we're pretty good now. I think there's, um, there's been teething problems. I think early on we knew what our kind of skill sets and kind of interests were. And Alex tended to look after more of the kind of operations side, the client, the project management, the kind of the logistics of making the thing work. And I tended to look after more of the creative side. And then I think we're at our best where those two things are still pretty pretty aligned. I think we're at our worst when we tip into each other's bit, like try and get me to do the client or the logistics side and it falls over pretty quickly. Um, I think Alex could probably deal with the creative much better than I can deal with his bit. Um, but no, I think we have, um, we're lucky that we've got a great team and we've got some great leads within those businesses that have their specific roles. And then, yeah, Alex and I kind of work across all four businesses and we look at it quarter to quarter as to where our focus needs and attentions need to be. Um, we set objectives to get done and focus on so that we don't get distracted too much by by other things. Um, but no, I think on the whole, we're, we're still pretty aligned in those those roles. Alex has a kind of managing director title, which I think is is pretty accurate. Um, I've always struggled with the kind of title that I get. And now you're going to ask me what it is. So um, <laughs> it's, 
I guess it's kind of somewhere between a creative director and an innovation director. I think my interest has always been in the stu- in the identifying what that new potential opportunity is. But I think Alex uh, kind of always talks about it quite well, which is I'll kind of run with something and, and kind of get it going and get it there. And then at the right time, Alex comes in and goes, okay, cool, now let's kind of tidy up the process, the logistics. Actually, what are the kind of opportunities and how do we maximise those? I think that's when, when we're at our best. I think what's also quite interesting about our roles is that, again, I'm going to take the modesty out of it a little bit, Will, in that we've worked that out over a long time that actually we believe in a creative lead and an operational lead on all of our businesses. And so we've written principles for the Hudson Beck Group about how we believe those businesses should run. And we will never put, I would say, I'd bet on it, we'd never put a single CEO in any of those businesses because we don't believe that's how our businesses operate. We believe it's about collaboration and communication between two people, one with who looks after one side and one that looks after the other. And um, we're trying to build that in our businesses now to make sure there's two people leading every single one and it is never on a single opinion or a single point of view. And although we may have stumbled into that and we're kind of post-rationalising it, now that's becoming an absolute principle that's at the bedrock of the Hudson Beck Group. I agree, actually. In the 20 plus years I was at Sterling, um, it was always really important that we had somebody running the external platform for the organization and somebody running the internal. You know, the internal was all the operations and what was happening that only the people inside the organization could see. And then somebody running all of the output that was what the world was seeing. And, And that included the creative. So it was a really, I think, smart but also accidental delegation of uh, talents in in an effort to keep us from not killing each other. (laughs) (laughs) Accidental. I don't know if that helps with you guys. (laughs) I think accidental delegation is exactly, exactly the right starting point. And I think we've taken a lot of accidents, you know, bits of luck, bits of opportunities, and we've worked so doggedly to crystallize them into things that really mean something and have the chance to last forever. I think that's really what me and Will have done, if anything, in the group is take starting points and really try and solidify them into meaningful things. And and that's not to say that everything works. I think some of the hardest conversations have been where we've really put a lot of time and energy into something and we've given it its course to run. And we just kind of go, look, it's just, it's taking up too much time, too much resource. I don't really think, we don't think it's got legs. And it's really difficult to kind of, and we always talk about pausing that stuff. We'll never outright stop it. We'll pause it and see if the audience that we were talking to kind of say, hey, hang on, where have you gone? And actually some of the best advice I got ages ago was never announce you're stopping something because people will they'll be uproar. Just stop doing it and see if anyone notices. <laughs> What what can you point to as an example of doing that? So we ran a we ran an events listing called This at There. Um, super simple. It was name of exhibition at name of venue. That was the setup. It was events listing. It would count down as to how long you've got left to go and view that thing. But it was it was a member of the editorial team. Maybe one one and a half days a week. It wasn't generating any revenue on its own, and it probably ran for eighteen months, two years. And I think at a point that we looked at all the opportunity across, um, it's nice that we said, look, we really think there's an opportunity to go and do uh, more online or change a tact somewhere. And something had to give. We weren't in a position to over-resource and bring someone else in. So we, we decided to take the difficult decision to pause. So you've been in business 13 years. You have millions of people looking at your site. You have three other businesses that are brewing. What 
do you envision 10 years down the road for the Hudson Beck Group? This is a really great question and actually something that we started to think about a couple of years ago in what 2030 looks like and what would success look like. And one of the big pieces of advice we always got was to set success metrics so that you're not always hankering for the next thing. Actually, when are you going to celebrate? When is it going to be done? And the key to the whole group really in the next 10 years is sticking to that purpose of enabling creativity to thrive and being able to pivot and roll with the punches of what the industry needs at certain points. So right now, as we sit here in lockdown, it's clear the creative industry needs something very different right now than we could have imagined six months ago. But we're working really hard on working out how we enable creatives and creative opportunity to thrive in in whatever situation that might be. So that's really what we're working on. And that we hope will mean those businesses are bigger and more impactful and helping more people. Really, we're judging the success of the group on how many people we help and how much creativity we enable, really not on profit margins and on turnover and on amount of staff. So it will be judged on that and also on using our platform for for some real good. There's something really profound in it's taken 13 years to build what is a really um, in our industry a big platform now and that was kind of easy because in your head you're just building so the, the success is always just more and bigger so now we're at a scale where we feel we have real influence it's a much harder question to now answer what are you going to do with it and I think over the next 10 years there are huge injustices or challenges that face the creative industry like diversity for example like people from different socioeconomic backgrounds getting into the industry. Like, how do we solve some of the bigger, more substantial, more inherent challenges in the creative industry rather than finding someone a job who maybe would have got a job on another job board? That, for us, is a real fascinating, difficult, juicy challenge for the next 10 years. That sounds really noble and really important. Alex Beck, Will Hudson, thank you so much for making the world so much nicer. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for including us. You can find out more about Alex and Will on their website, itsnicethat.com, which will also provide links to their many, many initiatives. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Heffler & Co. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.